1: The Reasonable Voices are advocates prioritizing education, preserving our history, leading by example for a peaceful and prosperous world by evoking and embracing both creative artists and political unity as solutions to our challenges. Hello and welcome to the Reasonable Voices News Talk Radio Program. I'm your host, Marcello Rolando, the Reasonable Voice. Our Reasonable Voice today is soprano Margaret Genovese. Originally from the Washington, D.C. area, she earned a bachelor degree of music and an artist diploma from the Peabody Institute of the Johns Hopkins University in Baltimore, where she was a two-time recipient of the Liberace Foundation Scholarship. Ms. Genovese was a finalist in the Metropolitan Opera Pacific Regional Competition and first-place winner of the National Symphony Orchestra's Young Soloist Competition she made her first professional operatic debut in mozart's the magic flute appearing as papagena with the baltimore opera company She also performed at the John F. Kennedy Center for the Performing Arts as a soloist and toured Sydney, Australia as Christine in an adaptation of Phantom of the Opera by Helen Grigal and Eugene Anderson. Then our young diva headed to California, where Margaret Genovese performed leading soprano roles with the Pacific Repertory Opera, the Bear Valley Music Festival, North Bay Opera, pocket opera and currently where miss genovese is singing with the san francisco opera chorus in beethoven's fidelio which opens in october 2021 after being cancelled in 2020 because of covid so welcome margaret genovese to the reasonable voices news talk radio program how are you today
2: i'm fine marcella thank you for inviting me
1: it's absolutely my pleasure this is going to be so much fun margaret and i work together at least I directed her at least two productions and but as we were talking before we came on the air I discovered in reading her bio because it's been quite a while we actually worked at many of the same venues but not at the same time. I had no idea uh, Margaret how uh, how often our careers crisscrossed until I read your bio as I said but then I discovered I believe being the elder of the two of us that for some of our venues in common I was there years before you. Now, this is where you're supposed to say, oh, Marcello, you're not that much older than I am. (laughs)
2: We're not that old. Come on.
1: (laughs) Well, so, but seriously, help me uh, put together some sort of combo chronology, I guess. I mean, I was at Peabody from 1969 to 1972, and when were you crowned Miss Annapolis? You
2: know, that gives away my age a little bit. Uh, Yes, I was at Miss
1: Annapolis in 1984. Oh, okay. Like I said, I was at Peabody as a student in 1969, and somewhere before 1972, I was the first assistant stage director of the Peabody Opera Company because when I arrived at Peabody, the opera department was was not really what you and I experienced when we were there. It was a very different thing, but I was one of the students who said we need to make this more of a production-oriented department, and they hired Harvey Vincent. I don't know if he was still there when you were at Peabody. He was with CBS in New York. He came down and uh, became the stage director for the Peabody Conservatory of Music Opera Department, and it grew, and as things would have it, he hired me to be his assistant stage director. Now, all that about me. Only to ask you, how and when did you and the Peabody Conservatory of Music and Baltimore uh, become connected?
2: Well, when I first went to college, I went to Salisbury State University, where I decided to be a phys ed major and a voice minor. And the teacher that I studied with had actually studied with Rosa Poncelle. So she was a wonderful teacher, and somewhere along the line, I think it was my teacher that I had studied with in Brockville, he convinced me that I should go to Peabody, that I should audition, that, you know, he really believed in my voice. So I kind of, I poo-pooed a bit, and he kept after my mom about it. So finally, I decided that I would just give it a try. And I remember I had a cold when I had to do my audition. And I think I announced, I said, I'm kind of cold, but I think I can still sing. (laughs) (laughs) And they're like, oh, okay. So I sang, and, you know, the rest is history. I got a letter later that summer saying that I had been accepted. So I was, I absolutely could not believe it. I was just, you know, really excited. So anyway, that's how I ended up at Peabody.
1: And when yeah. when exactly was that?
2: 1979.
1: Oh, well, you were right behind me. Yeah, ah.
2: ten
1: years. Oh wow. Okay. Well, I laughed when you said well, that you told them you had a cold, but you still thought you could sing because knowing you, that is so you. <laughs> <laughs> that is so something you would say at an audition. You know, <laughs> I, I don't remember. I don't remember having to audition at Peabody. I'm sure I did. I I guess that was the procedure, I I don't know. Except maybe it wasn't, because maybe at the time, again, the opera department changed so much between the time I was graduated from Peabody and the time that you came to Peabody that it may very well be that an audition system had been developed in the meantime. That would have made a lot of sense.
2: Around the time that I came there was when the opera department really began to you know, step up its game, from what I had been told. I don't know what it was like previously, but it it was my feeling that the school was more oriented towards instrumentalists rather than singers.
1: Yes. You're absolutely right, and I can tell you a bit of the story. When I arrived at Peabody in 69, I can't remember his first name now, and that's a shame, because he was an amazing metropolitan opera baritone. His last name was Valentino. I can't remember his first name but in any case he was a tremendous uh, singer and because he was such a tremendous singer and from the Met he sort of inherited the opera department which was primarily vocal coaching from him and that's what I walked into but I'd always been a director I mean I was directing shows when I was in high school and so immediately I thought, no, 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 we need some dramatic instruction, you know, and, and help as well. So I think when Harvey Vinson came, he changed all of that. Dr. Richard Goldman became the new president, and we met. He liked and knew things I had said and suggested, and he wanted to follow through on them. He brought in Robert Lawrence, the conductor of the Peabody Opera company. Uh, And then Robert Lawrence brought Harvey Vincent. That's how that happened. Harvey Vincent was a stage director and I became Harvey Vincent's assistant. So so by the time you got there, I hope uh, things were move along a lot smoother than it had been prior to your arrival. How's that?
2: Right. I I think
1: Well, before I forget, you you mentioned your mom. Uh, How are your mom and dad? I always enjoyed uh, being in their company. Delightful people. How are they?
2: Oh, they're they're doing well. They live in leisure world. And they used to go to Arizona yearly, but then with COVID, you know, that kind of ended. Yes. Uh, um, But they're they're enjoying their retirement. And my dad plays off. And hopefully they'll get to you know, do some traveling again, but they haven't been out to
1: California in a couple of years so. Well, you know, better safe, you know, and I've pretty much curtailed my traveling as well for the same reasons. And of course, a lot of work was canceled because of COVID. Getting back to my desire to know some chronology here, forgive me for imposing that on on this conversation, but just reading your bio was so interesting to me. And I kept going, she was there? When was she there, you know? It's not like I wouldn't have noticed your voice, you know what I mean? Right. But I think, I think I was in New York, and you were on the cover of Opera News, if I remember correctly, and they were calling you the queen of the Peabody Opera. When did that happen? Oh,
2: wow. The only thing I remember about Opera News was, the first opera that I was in at Peabody was The Apothecary by Haydn. Yes. And there was a picture taken of Jimmy Harp, who was the baritone in in the opera, so there was a photo of the two of us that had been taken and was maybe on the Peabody News, and somehow it ended up in the Opera News magazine, (laughs) and we don't know, we don't know how that happened, but it was just this photo of us, you know, performing in the opera. So I hope that answers your
1: question. Well, it does, and I and I want you to know I remember that because it certainly caught my eye because I knew you and it worked with you. I mean, I knew it came after we had worked together because I'm pretty certain I was in New York by that time. But the caption was, Margaret Genovese, the queen of the Peabody Opera. And I went, okay then. That's not bad. You know,
2: I think they remember something like that, but... I thought it was in a, a newspaper or something like that, but wow! I mean, that's great.
1: <laughs> you know, don't you love don't you love hearing and being, or even being reminded of things that you've long since forgotten, but you did them.
2: Oh, I'm like, did I do that, or did people say that?
1: <laughs> <laughs> Another that will, because you brought up Rosa Ponselle, we have the Baltimore Opera Company in common too, and I. I don't suppose you remember Jim Atherton. He he was there even before I was, but he was still there when I was there. This name you will remember that bass baritone James Morris. We called him Jim. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> my Baltimore Opera experience was that James Morris, long before his time at the Met, of course, but at Peabody and the Baltimore Opera, there were five of us in Salome, the five Jews, and it was the, and I played the fifth Jew. And I was, uh, I had, Niemand kann sagen wie Gott wirkt. And something like that. We were cast in Salome. And Herman Adler was the conductor. Uh, the funniest story from that, everyone was saving their voice. You know, all the leads were, were name people in those days. And so I saved my voice when it was time for my one little line. <laughs> and Herman Adler said, fifth jew what for you sing your voice you sing siegfried tomorrow i never will forget that I uh, it's just you know it was this hysterical moment it wasn't funny at the time but it has been funny many years after that so anyway rosa poncel had been approached and they wanted to bring in quote unquote new york jews that is people to play the jewish roles from new york and she put her foot down and said no right here at baltimore in Peabody, we've got great singers who can play the Jews. I want Baltimore Jews, <laughs> and what happened? James Atherton and I were cast, and 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 when I years later was doing some lecturing. I told this story, and a little old lady came up to me afterwards and said, you know, you shouldn't make up stories. You're far too young to have known Rosa Poncel. (laughs) And, well, I knew her as far as that production, and she was responsible for launching my opera career, that's for sure. Jim Morris and I were in the Baltimore Opera's production of uh, Unballo and Mascara, and I think we played the bandits, Sam and Tom. I'm not certain on that one but Jim Morris was not in Salome, Is my point. Anyway, but tell us about you and the Baltimore Opera, and again, when were you there, Papagena, the Magic Flute, oh my god, tell us.
2: Yeah, this, that was very interesting. Another student, baritone, had been hired to sing in the chorus of the Baltimore Opera, and he kept telling me, oh, you should audition for them, and I said, oh, okay, well, let me, when are the auditions? And he gave me the affirmation, and this must have been around 1981, I believe. So I auditioned and they hired me for the chorus you know, for the next fall. And I was still in school, and a lot of the people from Peabody sang in the chorus. So I was really excited. The first opera I was in was Mobble M, and they had me dressed as a kid.
3: <laughs> <laughs>
2: the more petite women that were in there, were, we always played kids. So I don't know what happened, but I think for. A few years later his name is just escaping me I'll, I'll remember it later anyway, so he approaches me and says how would you like to do the role of Pop Gana? and because I've been hired I was supposed to be in the chorus uh-huh. I was like, oh, oh, okay yeah. <laughs> <You> know, <he's, laughs> I was like, "Oh yeah, sure, I'll do that though so I didn't realize what be, that it was kind of a big deal I mean, it's a small part but
1: it was a big deal.
2: Right, right. So that's how that came about. And talking about, you were talking about the, that conductor giving you a hard time. Well, I had my little incident with that where we were rehearsing, and for some reason I kept holding this note that I wasn't supposed to hold, and he kind of got mad, and he said, do you think, what, do you think you're Beverly Hills or something? Oh. And that an embarrassing moment
1: for me, but I guess we all have this, this yes. moment. Well, um, again, we, we're just 10 years apart on on the same venues. I just find it so fascinating uh, to find this out at this point in our friendship and careers. It's great. How about, uh, right. I still remember with some professional delight to discover you when you auditioned for a production. I, I was directing the Kismet down in uh, Virginia, long before my years in NYC. Do you remember the, that audition and how you responded to it? Because you told that story to me sometime after, I, the, after the fact.
2: I remember it was pouring rain that day. and you know It was about an hour drive for me to get there. So my dad went with me, and I guess he, he probably drove. I mean, it was we had to pull over at one point because it was raining so hard. So he came in with me, and, you know, I, just, I always remember because he got a kick out of the fact that you thought he was auditioning.
1: <laughs>
2: <laughs>
1: I did. I don't remember that. That's terrific.
2: Yeah, you thought he was there to audition, and you said you were trying to gather people together in, in groups. Anyway, he always he thought that was funny. So yeah, I re- I remember I I walked in and I just sang the piece, and I only I didn't even sing the piece. I sang like a measure, and you were like, "Thank you." <laughs>
1: <laughs> That's an exaggeration, ladies and gentlemen. I let her sing four measures. <laughs>
2: <laughs> yeah, four measures. Okay, but I was like, "Are you kidding me?" I'm thinking to myself, and and then you had me read. And you know, I think I got this wrong. It was so I went to that audition on my own, but then there were callbacks. So I did the four measures, and you had me read a little bit, and and then I was called. You asked me to come back, and that's when my dad drove me, and it was raining. And anyway, no, I do. That was that was just a a funny experience because I I had never really, whenever I had auditioned, I always sang the whole song. (laughs)
1: <laughs> well, in my defense, first of all, okay. in, in opera, they don't yeah. interrupt you. You do sing. And and when I've directed opera and when I worked at Juilliard and was the primary uh, person to audition those trying to be accepted in the American Opera Center, I let them sing the entire aria. But in musical theater, especially in New York, you get an opportunity to sing your best 16 bars and sometimes only eight bars or eight measures and um, I know I let you sing four only because you told me after I cast you I called you to cast you that's what it was and you were very surprised to hear from me and you said I only sang four bars how did you know I, I could even sing and I went when you got it like you kid I knew you were fabulous and it didn't take any more than four measures for me to know this was Marcinat. It was my pleasure, let me tell you.
2: Oh, just I was really thrilled to be hired for that because I had just graduated and that was kind of like my, you know, I felt like here I have a job singing. Even though I was singing in the chorus with Baltimore Opera, I just kind of felt like, it felt like all these things were happening at once. I had I won that National Symphony Orchestra competition and was going to, Thing with the National Symphony, and then I had the job you gave me, and then there was the propaganda. It all happened all at once, so it was an exciting time
1: for me. Wonderful. I'm glad to have been a small part of it, really, and I really loved your performance, as you know, and Kismet. You brought down the house every time you did it, and it was because, in all due modesty, I am good at what I do. First of all, you looked you looked physically perfect for Marcinac and so i was yeah. i was praying oh god let her sing the way she looks and then you did and all i needed were the four measures because it's a glorious voice and it still is and i say that everyone listening because not terribly long ago this year margaret and i worked via zoom on a song that's a part of a musical that i'm writing and so i did get to work with her as a director at least over zoom in all of its I'd say challenges. I think we conquered it. Anyway, you did some performing in, in Washington, D.C. Is What was that?
2: Yeah, I did a lot of um, oratorio with a couple of different groups. There's, there seems to be a lot of opportunity there in that area for that type of work. So I kind of got in the group with that. I did many messiahs. And I did one interesting thing with the Baltimore Coral Arts Society. Tom Hall, music director of that at the time, hired me to sing Pinkham's Getting to Heaven, which is kind of a challenging piece, but that was exciting. The Annapolis Brass Quintet played in it, and one of the members contacted me because they had been posting some of their performances over the years on Facebook, and he wanted to know if I... Had a recording of it. So when I find one, it's a recording of it that Tom Hall had given me to give me a, an idea of how the music sounds. And so I did some more digging and I finally found the one that I sang in. And I was able to, to get it to him and, and I couldn't even really listen to it because I no longer had a tape deck. You know, all that technology is kind of pretty much gone. So he was able to transfer it and, and he posted it on Facebook. So that was it was really interesting to hear that again after all these years. Deborah Fleischer
1: played the harp on it, so she's the daughter of Leon Fleischer. Yes, yes. Who was a teacher at Peabody Conservatory of Music, where yeah. where Margaret and I went a decade apart. Anyway. Why don't we take a break? This has been so exciting and fun for us, and I hope the audience is having as much fun as we are. Stay with us. We'll be right back. There's a lot more to talk about after a short commercial break in which you'll hear some of Margaret Genovese's beautiful voice. Welcome back to the Reasonable Voices News Talk radio program. My reasonable voice today is the soprano, Margaret Genovese, with whom I've had the great pleasure of working a few times. And we've discovered during this uh, both my preparation for the show and during our conversation that uh, many times our careers pass through the same venues about a decade apart. But something I remember reading, another thing in addition to the opera news story, when I was in New York, I heard you had, I thought, moved to Japan, which was, well, it was just a surprise. And I was going, gee, what's she doing in Japan? Tell us.
2: Okay. My husband was working with for Intel Corporation. And they wanted to relocate him to Intel Japan. They realized that was probably going to cost too much money and it would be cheaper if they just relocated us to California and haven't commute. So he was commuting, he'd go to Japan for two weeks, come back, go to Japan for two weeks. So there's this competition called the Tokyo International Voice Competition. And so I decided that I would enter that. You had to send in a tape and then they'd let you know whether, whether you made the beginning part of it. So anyway, I got accepted into the competition. So I flew to Japan and my husband was there. And this is a really interesting competition. I ended up running into several people that I knew from Peabody that were entering the competition. It was like, oh, my God, you're here. <laughs> um, and, and, I mean, the, the whole thing was just very, very organized. You had a certain amount of time where you could warm up. They'd give you a room, you'd, and they'd give you, like, 10 minutes to warm up. And you'd go on and sing. And then the, Anyway, I made the next round. And they paid our way there. They paid for the airline ticket and they paid for our room and board. So I made the final, and then I sang again, but then I didn't make it to the next round. And the winner ended up being this Russian tenor. He sang like five huge arias in a row. They made him sing like all of them. So we got to tour around a bit. So that was that was exciting. I I, I still can't believe like I you know I went there by myself, and I don't even remember how I got to the hotel or how I worked that out, but somehow it worked. There were a few really friendly people that they wanted to work on their English, so they would realize, you know, you're from the U.S., and they would come up and try their best to talk to you and be helpful.
1: Very good. I don't remember how this happened. I think it was the Prince George's Opera hired me to direct Hansel and Gretel. When I got there, you were in the cast, and I was so happy about that. Do you remember how that came about? I mean, did you know I was going to be directing it? I I, I don't
2: ever remember auditioning for them, <laughs> it's, but, but I, I remember being in that production. I thought it was something like they hadn't cast everyone, and somehow you recommended
1: I, me. Yes, I remember now. You're right. They hadn't cast the role and i said oh i know someone who can do that (laughs) i'd forgotten that well good for me and glad i did it part
2: of the do theory you know i just i sang this really beautiful aria and i was i enjoyed that i had actually done gretel at peabody so i was familiar with the opera
1: it was it was a fun time for me because i my career started in opera as the assistant stage director the the blossoming opera department at peabody so I I so appreciate when I have an opportunity. As much as I love directing on camera, I love directing theater. When I get a chance to direct opera, I just run to it. And the whole rehearsal process is a shorter period of time because the yeah. the, the demand on the voices is more than generally, you know, in musical theater. In any case, we, we put it together and what I loved about it and what uh, I was told the the opera company loved about it is generally their directors did not give a lot of staging movement to opera singers which is something i always had a pet peeve about like i said at peabody i'm going we can't just stand around and sing you have to do something yeah and and so I don't know if you recall, but one of the things I do remember that Hansel and Gretel had this duet, and I staged it with them sort of having an argument while they cleaned the, the house and okay. it was it, they loved that and and so, and they were willing to try anything, which was a lot more animated than people get to be, but when you are performing a lot more opera than I'm directing opera, do you run into many directors who? Like to approach opera as theater, or are are they more or less still traditional in their approach to directing opera? Yes.
2: I think it's become a lot more theatrical. You know, they really want to see the drama. So when I did I did Violetta in Cavatina with uh, North Bay Opera and the director there, the way he directed it, I mean, he gave us a lot of detail. And he always said, you know, I wish this was, I want it to be as if it was on TV, you know, where you can see everything. Yes. Um, so it was his way of directing you. I mean, it was almost like he directed every every move you made.
1: Uh-huh. I
2: thought it came off really well.
1: I, I'm sure it um, did.
2: Yeah. It, I mean, there's a lot to remember, and it's, it's hard to, you know, when you're doing really strenuous things. Difficult music, you know. To then, on top of that, remember all these little intricate details. But that, that's
3: why it's
1: work, you know. <laughs> that's exactly. Even at Peabody, I said it needs to be on television, and that was long before that was the norm. And I'm glad at least we've gotten there finally. So you're out in California still. Uh, you work with the yes. San Francisco Opera on occasion. Evidently, you're one of the regulars. Yes.
2: You know, I was hired there if it was 1994 and they offered me like five I was in five operas but I think I was only able to take three of them because I was doing some other singing and then the next year they they hired me on for the their regular chorus which is the full time but I found it a very challenging position I was in nine operas at once you're so wow. rehearsing doing a dress rehearsal for one opera and a performance maybe like that evening, kind of that that kind of schedule. Yes. I decided that 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 was just too much for me, and I I was still wanting to do other performing, so I went back to doing just the extra chorus. And then I had a kid and pretty much kind of dropped out of singing for quite a while and then re-emerged in 2015. (laughs) You know, it's like you can never quite give it up, you know. Once it's in your blood, you know, you're just always a singer.
1: Exactly. Absolutely. And you definitely will be always a singer, no question. I wonder, though, what happened. I know, you know, we're all dealing with, I'm bouncing back between New York and Washington, D.C. all the time, and I drive for obvious reasons these days, but it is a challenge for everybody. Obviously, it's a challenge for the medical profession most of all first responders but it's also a challenge for parents it's a challenge especially for young with younger kids the, now with the variants and not being yeah. able to get the vaccine but i make a point on my show especially when i'm talking with someone like you to make everyone aware that people in show business broadway opera movies tv productions all of those things came to an abrupt halt. It was simply there one day and not there the next. I hope everybody's going to be safe in the few Broadway shows that have opened, uh, but yeah. um, you know, both in the audience and on the stage. But how was your career affected? I mean, you mentioned having a child, but that probably didn't stop you as much as COVID has. What, what's it like out there? And how close are you to the forest fires, by the way?
2: Uh, We're well- pretty far away from them. You know, that's more towards the south that has problems, but we do get the smoke. You know, it blows here, but we're not in any imminent danger like that our house is going to burn down.
1: Well, that's good.
2: So, thankful for that, but, you know, it could. Our house backs up to a park and there's, I mean, it's not like a park. It's like we're an area of trails. That's a potential dangerous fire area, but, So far, you know, we've never experienced anything. Yeah, having a child, I mean, that's different. It's like, that was sort of my choice. Uh, You know, I could have continued, and that was more of a lifestyle choice. But with COVID, yeah, it was the strangest thing. Um, We were about to start rehearsals for Fidelio, and, you know, I I get an email saying that it's been canceled and we're going to move to... Have the rehearsals through Zoom. And that was quite a challenge because, as you know, you can't have everyone singing at once. So we basically had to have everyone muted except for the, the accompanist and the chorus director and just kind of go through it, go through the music on our own. You know, it's frustrating for him because, you know, he wanted to be able to hear us. <laughs> so we went through with that for a while. And then it became apparent that season this was not gonna happen. So I would say that was like mid July. Lucky for me it's only something I do part time, but for some of the people that were full time, it was real devastating, but they still were able to get some payment, so it wasn't all that bad and now we're back. So the protocol they have now is we get tested once a week and they've designed this special singer's mask that we have to wear when we sing but once we're in performance we won't have to wear the mask i'll have to send you a picture of the
1: mask it's really interesting i'd love to see it i can't imagine i mean there's such challenges to overcome but but we are we are overcoming we always do and uh, i mean not just americans but performers doctors and nurses are certainly overcoming anything they ever expected I know people who just entered the medical profession when Covid broke uh, oh, God. it's like yeah exactly tell you know you mentioned, of course, we talked about briefly you being at the john f kennedy center um and tell us about that because that's another venue where i I directed a number of shows in in what was then three of the four houses, now I think they have six houses within the center. I haven't been there in, Decades. Uh, what what were you performing at the Kennedy Center, and when were you performing it? <laughs> Do I sound like a detective? <laughs> <laughs>
2: the first time I sang there was because I had won that competition. It was the Young the Lewis, Young Artist Soloist Competition. Oh, that's another funny story. During the competition, I didn't realize I had won. <laughs> so I, I thought I had second place. The woman that announced it said, we have two winners. So they couldn't decide between us. So they decided that it was the pianist was the other winner. And so it wasn't until afterwards when my family and everyone came up and they said, no, you're, I'm like, well, I got second place. I guess that's, that's pretty good. And they're like, no, oh, you won. The prize was the opportunity to sing with the National Symphony Orchestra. So I got to do that. I sang Symphony Libera from the Okay, so then the second time I sang there was a, it was a Messiah sing-along with the Paul Hill Chorale.
1: Oh, yes. And so I was one of the soloists for that. Did you perform in the Opera House or the Concert Hall? The
2: Concert Hall. Oh, yes. But I did sing also chorus with the Washington Opera. I did one season with them, so I did get an opportunity to perform in the Opera House.
1: Patrick Hayes. America of the Musical, or something like that. It was an original show that used musicals to tell the story of America, and Patrick Hayes saw the show, and that's when oh. he came, yes, that's when he came and introduced himself to me, and we became good buddies for a good while. He introduced me to uh, Zelda Fitchlander, and, you know, I mean, he was He was amazingly helpful for me during that time working in D.C. before I went and really stayed in New York and worked in New York. Oh,
2: yeah, I I remember you introduced him to me.
1: Oh. And Yeah, I I met with him.
2: I don't don't know if you remember
1: that. I don't. I didn't remember that. I was going to ask if you knew him. Okay, so we must have at least crossed paths at some point at the Kennedy Center because how could I have introduced you to him?
2: Right. Maybe because I sang there, and I guess you knew that, and then you thought it might be a good idea to introduce me to him.
1: Yes. I hope people aren't thinking we're too absent absent-minded old silly people, but the the thing is, guys, we Margaret and I have been very fortunate to work a great deal, a great deal, and you do a lot of things over decades of time and you don't remember all of it because it's not like every time you do something you think this is the greatest thing, even though sometimes Margaret and I, I know have worked and gone, this is the greatest thing I've ever going to do, but then we are blessed with even more great things and you are so concentrating on what you're doing at that time and then what's next because performers never stop working. (laughs) You're either rehearsing, performing, or auditioning. (laughs) What do you say, Margaret, to that?
2: Yeah, you know, you're always moving
1: on to the next thing. Exactly.
2: You're constantly having to outdo your last performance,
1: you know. Absolutely. I couldn't agree with you more. And that's why we don't always hold on to, and I mean performers in general, because I have these kinds of conversations with many performers, and I mentioned something that I know they did that was pretty big, Broadway or whatever, and they'll go, oh, yes, I did it. <laughs> One of the two last things I want to end with, is, as much as I hate to go... Juilliard. Juilliard, I remember because of what happened to me. And I've told this story a number of times when I was teaching television acting to actors in New York. I was teaching them, in this business, you have to be kind to everybody. You have to help everybody. None of this jealousy competition stuff. We're all in it together trying to make it, and we all help each other. And long before I taught that class, or even lived in New York, you got an audition at Juilliard. I don't think I was in New York. I think I was still in D.C. and your parents asked if I would drive you up. I don't know if I'm remembering that accurately or not. But um, maybe you were already married. I don't remember. Anyway, do you remember? (laughs) The
2: the experience with Juilliard Juilliard had this other program and and it wasn't really part of it wasn't the school. It was this
1: other thing. Yes, I which, know. The American Opera Center. Yeah, yes. So I
2: auditioned, I auditioned for that. And um, I had an amazing audition. It's one of those, you know, every now and then you just have an audition that, you know, is, I can't believe I sang so well. Mm-hmm. And it really only happened to me like maybe one other time. Because <laughs> <laughs> I'm, so, I'm so picky with myself. So I just, I walked in there and I just, you know, nailed it. And they said, can you please come down and talk to us for a minute? And the thing was, I think they thought I was really talented, but for whatever reason, they didn't want
1: to use me and they wanted me to audition for Julie, for the school, Julie. Yes, yes. So that, that was that story. Well, I can finish some of that for you. You just filled in something that I only remember because of what happened. This is the point of the story for me, something I, as I said, shared many times in teaching uh, students how to be the very best person you can be as we proceed with pursuing our artistic goals and desires. This is the greatest example of it, for me anyway. I just gave an incredibly talented soprano a ride. I just drove her to Juilliard. That's all I did. But what I did was always carry in my briefcase my resume because that's what I've always been taught and that's what I've always taught actors. While Margaret Genovese was auditioning for the American Opera Center in the beautiful opera theater there, I walked around. I'd never been in Juilliard. But I had my resume and I saw a sign that said stage department with an arrow pointing. So I followed it. And I found this, this office. Nobody was there. I took up my resume, wrote a little note, and put my resume on the front desk. And that was it. A year later, I was directing shows in Florida. And during the rehearsal, and they came in and they said, Marcello, uh, there's a call for you. You really need to take it. And I said, listen, I'm in rehearsal, but it's Juilliard. And of course... <laughs> I go in and I get on the phone and the woman said, "Uh, hello, Mr. Rolando, very formal. Martin Smith of the American Opera Center would like to talk to you. He got on the phone. He did a brief interview and he said, I would like you to come to New York and interview for a job that I'm creating at the American Opera Center. Yes, well, I got the job. It was the director of the rehearsal department of the American Opera Center and after some period of time things started to fill in the gaps that i was missing and one was your audition because as i became in charge of that sort of thing i simply asked my bosses one day do you remember auditioning margaret genovese and they said oh yes we thought she was fabulous she's still young and we want to nurture her through the department and then bring her to the american opera center so but what you did i want you to know just asking me to drive you to Juilliard. I didn't know for months into the job until one day the production stage manager of the Juilliard Opera Center Theater, in other words, all opera productions, she was the head guy. She came up one day and she said, Marcello, I know why your name sounds familiar to me. She says, I've been trying to figure it out because your face wouldn't look familiar, but your name is. And she said, a year ago or so, you left your resume On my husband's assistant's desk, her husband was the head of the technical department. I left my resume on his assistant's desk. He he kept it for some reason. And months later, when Martin Smith was having lunch with, I think his name was Ken, he said to Ken, "I'm looking for someone who is a director." who is a singer, and who knows arts administration. Where am I going to find somebody like that? And Ken said, I've got the guy. (laughs) This is how his wife told me. He said, I've got the guy. I have his resume. I'll send it to you. He gave it to to his wife, who delivered it to Martin Smith, who called me up, and that not only launched my career at the American Opera Center, but in New York. And I owe that to you, my dear. Well, you
2: know, if you haven't and carrying your
1: resume around. And secondly, the point of the story is don't forget to do a favor, especially when they're trying to uh, to be successful in the same field in which you are involved. That's where you okay. get to help the most because those are the people you know, you know, you're working with and you see at auditions. So, I know. yeah. That's a great story. Yes. Well, Margaret, I want your story now. Tell me what it is you feel is the most significant thing that you've learned in the performing arts in your few years and life here, in your career. and What do you want to share with us about you? Well, the biggest thing about being in this field
2: is you really, really have to believe in yourself. And it can be really challenging, you know, especially when you deal with rejection and self-doubt. But you really have to overcome that and just say, you know, I, I know I can do this. And it's, i I had ex- experiences with other singers where, you know, they just get so devastated. They don't it, get apart. Or it's, and you, you can just see them fall apart. And if you do that, you're never going to be able to make it. And I also find that you can't, take it all too seriously. You know, you really need to have fun with it. And, you know, there, there are other things in life as well. So, you know, it's all about being well-balanced. And then there comes a time maybe when, you know, you're not, maybe you're not happy with it and it's not what you want to do anymore. And that's okay, too. So I don't, I don't know what else to say. Um, maybe you can help me here.
1: No, I think you said it. I think that was incredible. There's more to life than what we want to do for a living?
2: Yeah, it's, you know, and you should really appreciate that, you know, the ability to be able to share your talents with people and that's really important and I, I think a lot of times singers and actors, they're just really too hard on themselves. You know, you just can't be like them.
1: Absolutely. Excellent. Alright, well let's tell people who want to hire and hear your beautiful voice. How they can do that. Your website is your name, yes? W Margaret M A R G A R E T Genovese. G-E-N-O-V E-S-E dot com. And any other social media information you want to share? Actually,
2: if you Google Margaret Genovese YouTube, some of my videos come
1: up. Well, that's a good place to end this conversation because when I saw you, I knew. You were going to be fabulous. And you opened your mouth, and all it took was four measures. Margaret. Oh, thank
2: you. Oh, thank you for having me and interviewing me.
1: And let's stay in touch, all right? Okay. All right. That's good. Bye now, and all the best to the family, okay?
2: Thank you. Bye, Marcello.
1: Bye now. And now, our guest today, soprano Margaret Genovese, singing "Chiù Bel Sogno di Doretta from La Rodine. Hello, I'm Marcello Rolando, the reasonable voice. Thanking you for joining us in becoming one of the reasonable voices heard round the world. Ah, if we only knew. Keeping our balance and republic during number three. Have you seen the surveys that insist most Americans cannot identify half of America's states on a map without state names provided? So I'm including a map of Europe. Before graduate school, I visited Europe for the first time, and discovered Europeans were curious about Americans who were neither in uniform nor tourists. They even asked me about American weather. So, in my best newly acquired opera-romantic languages, I explained that America is so big, we have different weather in different areas of the country. This was a new concept for them, because, given the size of Europe, Much of their weather is shared in common. So, what if Europe's next rainstorm is a downpour of radioactive fallout? I wonder what fantasies our collective American mind wander to in those few moments when we're not besieged by domestic tugs of war, self-serving interpretations of constitutional amendments, and foreign disinformation what do we wonder as we have wandered through endless mazes of madison avenue ads wall street hedge fund hurricanes and corporate owned talking heads swirling tornado talking points do we like an echo chamber declare peace for our time Or are we forever doomed by our denial of science versus viruses, climate change versus planet Earth, and education versus the sexual ignorance and desires of hypocritical politicians? How many books must conservative GOP governors and red state legislatures burn before we remember what is past is prologue? What do we think happens to a people who bury their dreams under a pile of narrow personal POVs with individual interests permanently planted in front of media more gossip than just the facts, ma'am? Unlike Republicans Carlos Jimenez, Mike Gallagher, Mitt Romney, and Lindsey Graham, President Joe Biden is correct to draw a red line against destroying the world in order to save it. But what if tyrants like Putin already know America's strategies from the jackass's mouth when a 2016 oval-shaped room cuddled a troika of one-way secret sharing as prelude, perhaps, to stolen government documents streaming from a Palm Beach Ocean Boulevard golf club before being securely archived for American posterity? ...before some Americans started attacking Russian restaurants in America which employed Ukrainians. Proving yet again we are still as short-sighted, thus easily manipulated, as Cheney's freedom fries. And the insanity of dumping out good French wine just because France saw through the folly of America's Iraq War of Choice and the weapons of mass destruction lies propagated to launch shock and awe for oil somewhat akin to Putin's current attempt to recapture a breadbasket gone democratic. Ironically, Vlad seeks an empire renaissance in which leaders such as he, who embarrassed the Union's military prowess and communist leaders, were dispatched as quickly as a Colone ordered ride in the country. Ponder this. If a global pandemic could cost Putin's American kindred spirit a second shot at a bully pulpit, could not COVID isolationism cost Putin any self-control over his vengeful cravings to reverse the greatest political catastrophe of the 20th century? Exactly how many times must fearful, hostile, and hateful men like Stalin, Hitler, Putin, and Trump rise to the world stage at the demise of national sanity before we are prepared to admit it is we ourselves who are the wings for each new carbon-copy bully of the continent, repeating the classic entree into global acquisitions. You ever wonder what if our 35th president had been as flippant about Khrushchev and Castro as our 45th remains even today toward NATO membership? What exactly do we think Americans who wear t-shirts that read, I'd rather be Russian than a Democrat, think about the exceptionalism of our American dream? What must we think demagogues do when unable to mesmerize a majority into believing every daily drop of drool from drones droning out disinformation for dummies? convince truck drivers to waste gas while complaining about the cost of gasoline to protest wearing a mask for protection from a global pandemic which has killed over 968,000 Americans. Because ignorance of past truths and denial of future inevitabilities have never shielded current events, we need rational thought or the next mushroom cloud won't reek of LBJ and Bush-Cheney smokescreens, but will be as real as human greed for power shatters peace, families, and lives. What do we think foreign and domestic tyrants do when they think time is on the side of democracy? What do we think Putin will do after Ukraine? Go home? Go home? Copy his copycat by telling Russians, I alone can fix it. Listen, with 40% of Americans programmed by political and financial puppeteers to worship oligarchy wannabes, more than celebrate emancipated life, liberty, and justice for all, it's not only America that needs a village, but planet Earth slipping further into a decrescendo from lack of human kindness, possibility thinking, and leading by example. Thank you, and join us. Become one of the reasonable voices heard round the world. Thank you for continuing to listen to, support, and share The Reasonable Voice blog, talk, radio with family and friends, especially online. We enjoy hearing from you, and in response, yes, we are now accepting new company and business advertisers and welcoming organizations seeking to be one of our sponsors. So please do continue to email us at thereasonablevoice at gmail.com. However, if you prefer to simply make a donation, your donations are greatly appreciated and can be made through PayPal by clicking on the Donate button found at the top of the homepage of the reasonablevoice.com website. Thank you for joining us today to make every day as reasonable as possible. We hope you will download and share our downloadable podcasts. I'm Marcello Rolando, the Reasonable Voice, hoping you will become one of the Reasonable Voices heard round the world.